Hey guys, welcome to Always Bet on Black, the premier thought leadership podcast. I'm your host, Paula Glover. Today I'm talking with Timothy Allen Simon, principal at TAS Strategies and Commissioner Emeritus from the California Public Utilities Commission. I really enjoyed my conversation with Tim. We talked about the importance of knowing our history and how our ancestors are always talking to us. I hope you enjoy this episode with Tim Simon. So I know I've had the opportunity to know you now for about, what, seven, eight, nine years. So it's more like maybe 12, maybe 12. So um, I know a lot about you, but not everything. Um, But I know that you have had, um, I think I meet a lot of interesting people, but you definitely have had one of the most interesting lives. Um, So I'm really excited just to talk to you and, and learn a whole bunch and from you, I know. Um, but let's start at the beginning, because that's stuff I don't know, actually. Where where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, I was born and raised in San Francisco, California, okay. at uh, Stanford Hospital, as it was then located in San Francisco mm-hmm. in 1955. I am the third of five children, and now the oldest. Uh, I've lost my two older siblings. Wow. Um, mother had migrated from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Her name was, maiden name was Betty Opal Lavasar. Her family lived on Greenwood. Wow. My great-grandfather uh, built buildings that were on Greenwood. And my father had come from Lake Charles, Louisiana, and uh, he was discharged from Port Chicago in Concord, California after the tragic explosion that resulted in the loss of over 300 lives of uh, black sailors. My mother lived at the Madam C.J. Walker Home for Girls when she came to San Francisco and attended uh, City College of San Francisco. So, you know, I was the middle child and we started, uh, my family started in the historic Fillmore district, it's called the Harlem of the West. But uh, when I was born, they had actually moved out to what would be more like a suburb of or within San Francisco called the Ingleside Heights District. Uh, black people refer to it as Lakeview. And okay. that's where I was uh, born and raised. I went to parochial schools, uh, St. Michael's, St. Ignatius College Prep, where I just termed out as a, a board of trustee. Went to a combination of Santa Clara University and University of San Francisco, uh, where I'm a trustee now, both Jesuit schools. And then went on to my first public school besides kindergarten, that's the University of California Hastings, where I received my law degree. Wow. So, you know, thank you for sharing that, but just just what you briefly shared, um, what I would imagine is that there is so much deep history just in your parents' and your grandparents' stories that I got to imagine that as you were growing up, there were some things that they shared with you based on their own life experience um, that probably provided some guiding principles or some things, some ideologies um, that you've probably held on to. And this, these are all of my assumptions, but um, share with us, that one, if, if it's not true, say, hey, that ain't true at all. But if it is true, I'd love to know kind of what you got from them. No, it's absolutely true. You know, my father was from a family of 16 uh, in Lake Charles, you know, good Catholic family. And, uh, you know, in his case, it was sheer survival. Yeah. An enormous amount of drive and ambition. He's a very successful entrepreneur in San Francisco and at one time worked in the Nixon administration. My mother was from a family of four girls out of Tulsa. Her father was murdered actually when she was eight years old and she developed an interest 
in at what she called at-risk girls and went on to become a, a social worker and had her own social work agency, uh, for lack of a better term. But our dinner table was rich with history, uh, particularly it was actually more forward thinking than history often because both of my parents were you know, very active in politics and uh, the NAACP, which I'm a lifetime member. My father was Republican. My mother was a Republican that converted to Democrat. Both of them eventually converted to Democrat. Uh, I was a Republican for many years. I'm no longer a, a member of a party. I do support the Lincoln Project. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I didn't really understand Jim Crow, which both of my parents came out of until I read Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons, mm. now reading her book, Cast, because I think my, my parents just didn't want us burdened with that. Uh, San Francisco was a relatively liberal town. It did have aspects of Jim Crow as all the United States did, but they really gave us more of a focus of the freedom fight going forward. And as a family, we're fully engaged in that. I know we're gonna talk about that. So my sister, whom I just lost, I was a member of the Black Panther Party. Both of my parents were active in political parties as well as local social clubs that had a focus on you know, community development and improvement. So I, I was in a very uh, rich uh, environment in terms of dialogue. Uh, we lived blocks from San Francisco State University where my older sister attended and they were the first black studies or African-American studies program in the United States. And that came as a result of strikes, strikes that were blended with the anti-Vietnam War movement. So this was, I would walk a few blocks to watch the riots uh, on the campus. You know, sometimes the students won, sometimes the police won. You know, so it was that kind of uh, richness that, uh, you know, going to Panther rallies with my older sister, uh, you know, attending Nation of Islam meetings. This is what it was in the 60s and 70s. This, this is what life was for most uh, African-Americans uh, who were engaged. My father had a real interest in economic development, you know, um, and I, it's ironic that today I chair the African-American Chamber of Commerce of California, because that's always been an interest of mine. I, I had a tendency to lean more towards the economic development, independent Garveyism type route as opposed to the more you know, social welfare safety net, which I now believe in strongly, but mm -hmm. I've always had a strong commitment in the belief that the less we as you know, black folks and all folks depend on government, probably the best you are. You know? But then you get older and you realize, well, if you're a defense contractor, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're a banker that deals in treasury bonds, you, know, you have a major dependence on government. So you grow old and wise and you move from that zealot position to more or less uh, understanding your surroundings better. It's like being in a, a plane on a tarmac and this happens often in San Francisco and the fog lifts right before your eyes. And now as a man we just lost, Johnny Nash recently sang and Bob Marley wrote, I can see clearly now, yeah. you know? And so that's what happens with age. You begin to see things more clearly than you had often as a child. Well, if we weren't 15 minutes in, I would probably end it right here because there's nugget number one. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all, you know, can reflect back to how we thought about things 
Yeah. And I'll just briefly, I've been, my, my son Nicholas always shares with me these podcasts. And so I'm always listening. And I was just listening to one about um, Biggie Smalls and Tupac mm. and see Dolores Tucker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was in my 20s when that happened. Yeah. And so I remember how I thought about that whole situation back then, which was that she was making a big deal out of nothing. And as my 50 plus year old self, when I hear it, I was like, I'm like, actually. No, when you see it as a young woman, I really didn't. Yeah, that was one of the most tragic stories of modern American, African-American history. She teamed with Robert Dole, senator, presidential candidate, Mm -hmm. to try to put a clamp on what we would today call gangster rap. She recognized the potential, the damage, and the, even the more potential damage that it was uh, causing our community, and really felt that the First Amendment had its limits. And she was attacked by the record industry and many African Americans. If my recollection was correct, drove to bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tragic because she, I think it was, I think she was the canary in the coal mine. You know, mm-hmm. having like you, having raised sons, having three children, and I raised my sons in the height of that era. And as an attorney and law professor, I felt like I was at war, you know, because everything I thought would be an image to look up to had been displaced by, you know, drug dealers. Yeah. Okay. No matter what status a child was in, I watched very educated young African American men try to act like they were drug dealers. You know, I used to tell my sons, I'm not hard, but I'm harder than you, you know, just based on the community that I came out of. But it was a, it was a very, very challenging time. So it's interesting you bring that up now that we see the endorsement of uh, President Trump by people like Low Pump, who I've never even heard of, and some of the other rappers. You know, I, I just said on the Black News Channel uh, this morning, I don't know if that part was taped, but if you listen to their lyrics, if you look at the lifestyle, they probably landed where they were supposed to be. Okay, you know, for every rhyme, there's a reason. You know, but at the same time, it's tragic that Miss Tucker, who was really trying to awaken us to the fact that this is damaging, this is destructive, this is this is you know marginalizing and humiliating the black woman, okay, and you know proposing addictive drugs in our communities that were already struggling from poverty, neglect, and blight. There wasn't a strong enough voice to go up against it, you know, and it's unfortunate. It is. You know, yeah. really is. Yeah. No, you're right. So your sister, you said, was a member of the Black Panther Party. Yeah. You were a member of the Nation of Islam. Yes. Correct. I was. Tell me about that. How you found the nation? What that experience was for you? Well, the nation really found me. Okay. Uh, uh, there was a medical student by the name of Jules X. Farmer. They went to the same prep school that I went to, and uh, he was. He used to come by our homes on Sundays, uh, selling the Muhammad Speaks, and come to find out that he was from San Francisco. Our families kind of known each other. I was a high school sophomore at the time, and he invited me to a, attend a meeting on Sunday. And um, you know, I, I I was immediately enthralled by the uh, what we call the teachings then of Elijah Muhammad. Uh, I don't know if I ever really adopted some of the theology in terms of, you know, white man being the devil and the mothership and other things. But, you know, every faith has its mystical side. You know, sure. Moses talked to a burning bush, right? right. So, you know, 
So uh, I, I found that kind of, you know, thrilling to be, to be very honest. And, but what really uh, inspired me was the economic agenda, the educational agenda, the reform agenda for, you know, former, uh, formerly incarcerated. You know, I, I, I sold papers with many guys who had done long, and, and worked in the Shabazz Bakery with many guys that had done long terms in prison and learned so much from them. And to now see certain states removing the barrier to voting for uh, former inmates of all colors, of all genders, of all shapes and sizes, I think is, a, is, a, is the important move in this nation to bring about true equality. That, that mass incarceration that came out of the omnibus crime bill, and before, by the way, yeah. uh, had an enormous effect on our abilities to stabilize you know, African-American communities, which are American communities. African-Americans have fought in every war in American history. African-Americans built this country. They built the nation's capital. They gave the United States the, the leapfrog capability of an industrial and agrarian economy because of slavery and Jim Crow, whether we volunteered for that or not. Right. So I always hold up this community with enormous respect, with enormous, you know, awe, because of, and, and that is what the nation of Islam taught. It said that you were the original man. You were, you, were, you were created in the image and likeness of God. Well, you look anywhere on the planet, they're always trying to find a set of relics or bones that are not of African origin. Everybody got all excited when they found some bones in China and found out that guy had come from Africa, you know? So there were things about, you know, those, those teachings that I found as a, remember now, I was very young, I was like, you know, 14, 15, 16, but I found it absolutely fascinating because even with the great Catholic education that I received, it, I didn't receive that education, right. okay? So, you know, by, by, by looking at our history, by looking at world history, by looking at, you know, the entire solar system from a, you know, formerly enslaved African-American standpoint, I believe whether people like the organization or not, that's their objective. We were controversial, admittedly, unapologetically, and I'm no longer a member. But I do believe that it gave me a perspective. It gave me a level of courage to look in the face of, for example, what we're seeing today, uh, to be able to be, you know, at times unliked in my own community because I was Republican, though every day of my life I was committed to making my community a better place. When you make those kind of decisions and steps that go against the grain, I think that's what often, you know, strengthens your, your character. Uh, my sister had a uh, ingrained, God rest her soul, uh, Demira Kalata Ahmad, Al-Haji Demira Kalata Ahmad. She had a just an ingrained sense of defiance in her. And she just believed in liberation the first time she heard it. <laughs> I think she was maybe like 13. She was the first. She went to presentation high school, Catholic high school in San Francisco. I believe she was the first girl to wear an Afro there, you know, and that's just who she was. She when she understood that we as, you know, Africans and Americans in this country were oppressed, she dedicated the rest of her life to fighting that oppression, was an educator, became a school principal. Um, you know, received a graduate degree from UC Berkeley, raised four amazing children, one who's an attorney, the other who's in Atlanta doing exceptionally well, All, another one who's a movie producer, very proud of them as I am proud of my own children. Um, you know, so uh, she was just defiant and whatever 
Rogue gave her the outlet to defy the power structure, you know, wherever it may be in education and policing. And, uh, you know, she was there. She was frontline and she was for real. I miss her every day. Yeah. She sounds pretty phenomenal. She's phenomenal. To be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is interesting to me because this idea of having an economic agenda as Black people mm -hmm. um, always seems to be the problem. Yeah, it's a you know, in some way, right? We we may talk about the problem differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I, I share an opinion that social justice in my mind and economic empowerment are actually two sides of the same, but you know, different sides of the same coin and you actually don't get one without the other. Yeah. Um, and I, I found myself wondering probably as I've gotten older, have we spent too much time around social justice and actually not enough time around economic empowerment? Um, and that as we begin to shift our focus, it seems to be that's where the pushback is. Yeah, that's a real vivid uh, argument. You know, Michelle Alexander said and wrote in the New Jim Crow that during the mass incarceration period, we were more focused on, you know, supplier diversity and affirmative action and just watched thousands of young men and women become incarcerated. I think they're one and of the same like you and you have to have that balance and, and we have to be able to talk. We can't be, be siloed. We have to be able to talk. The activists need to talk to the venture capitalists and the venture capitalists need to talk to the technology people and the technology people need to talk to the, the public health and the bio life science people. You know, we have to work as one along with our allies. You know, I mean, in, in truth, we are a nation of many. It's just unfortunate that, you know, African-Americans have so often been the targets of some of the bad things that exist in this great nation. So I, again, sitting on that runway, being older, I don't really see them as far apart any longer. I think they're one and of the same. You know, wealth accumulation and sex succession is probably one of the first steps to improving communities. Um, you know, uh, 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 the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which I was honored to be a member of for many years, sued uh, what was then uh, Nations Bank. Uh, now it's, you know, Bank of America for uh, discriminatory practices in, uh, in their lending. And, you know, it's interesting, Nations Bank responded, you know, based upon the, the studies that showed where whites of the same income were being granted loans at something like twice the rates of African-Americans. And Nations Bank said, yes, the same income, but not the same wealth, and went on to state that, that wealth is passed down and accumulated, it's not earned. And I'm like, wow. There you okay, go. This is a Charlotte, North Carolina bake, breaking it down. Okay. It may have been one of the strongest arguments for reparations, uh, you know, because it's true. And, and so, you know, from a societal standpoint, do we want the safety nets? Yes. We want utilities to provide lower cost uh, services to those who are impacted and find themselves, you know, 150%, up to 150% above the poverty level. Yes. <laughs> Do we want those same customers, those same citizens, those same brothers and sisters to have the tools to come out of poverty, to have that fishing pole to become a fisherman? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that to me as is is as you know fundamental as reform or defund the police. They're one and of the same. I don't personally see the distinction. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I would agree with you on that one. Because um, at the end of the day, 
all the other stuff is great, no money. It's just kind of stuff. I mean, we still live in a capitalistic nation. It is. It is. But but you know, Paula, you know, I I I live there's a there's a main thoroughfare strip nearby. And I'm proud to live in what is what was an African American community. It's becoming increasingly gentrified. Um, and uh, you know, Kim and I are blessed to have a beautiful home here. And but you know, around the corner there's a McDonald's, and I'll drive by at night, and that drive-through line is as long as uh, one could imagine. And I think about my mother, God rest her soul, Betty O, because she could take one of she could take the price of that combo meal and feed mm -hmm. a family of five for a few days. Oh yeah. Okay. And she saved like it was going out of style. Everything she did was designed to increase her savings rate. You know, and we had, you know, people think that because you own businesses, you're doing well. No, you got to make payroll. Right. And sometimes when you make payroll, my father declared bankruptcy. When you got to make payroll, it changes the game. So I do think while we're dealing with poverty, and I love the exercise that you participated in with uh, Missouri Commissioner and mm. his powerhouse, Maida Coleman, to have the life experience of being impoverished. But I remind us is that that's where our people came from. Yeah. And we found out ways to accumulate, to buy property, to, you know, to, to, to harvest land, to buy livestock, to sell livestock. And we grew and we grew and we grew. And I think in many ways, and I'm not trying to go back to Jim Crow, okay? I'm not trying to go back to the farm, even though we have a lot of African-American you know, brothers and sisters who are farmers. But I think some of those fundamentals that our great grandparents had could benefit us today from a microeconomic standpoint. Absolutely. And I think we're starting to see, certainly if you believe what you see out in Facebook land, and I, I call it Facebook land because I'm not quite sure it's a real place. <laughs> but when you're there, you feel like you're in a real place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, you're starting to see stories of African Americans who buy 100 acres of land and start their own community, or like I've joined um, several groups that are just Black-owned businesses and have right. said, you know what, I'm going to buy from Black-owned businesses. Yeah. For the holidays, I'm going to just direct my spending and looking. If I'm looking for a realtor, if I'm looking, is there someone who's African American who does that? Um, and there's that's been a shift in this time to me, right? That there seems to be more of us who are that deliberate about those types of choices. I'm excited about that more than I'm potentially disappointed by the election results, to be very honest. Yeah. You know, Langston Hughes, mother's son, mother's son, life will not be a crystal stair. And this, and, and I'm saying this as a, as a chamber board chairman of a chamber of the fifth largest economy in the world, yeah. you're not here in California. In this young hustle and grind generation, I am seeing more entrepreneurial and wealth building hope than I've seen in my lifetime. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I have to reflect back to the stories that my mother and my father gave me, like my mother about Greenwood, where there were black, you know, bus lines, hospitals, banks, you know, realtors and black owned insurance companies. I'm seeing this younger generation really catch that fervor. It's like it leaped over a few yeah. generations, many of whom I talk to that do not want to report to corporate America. They do not want to punch the card. They don't want the cubicle. They want to get out there and make it happen for themselves. Nothing wrong with having folks in the cubicle because we need them as well. So I'm very excited about what I see happening in our communities. And, and by the way, that's just who we are. As Maya Angelou said, we rise. Yeah. We rise. You can't keep us down. 
we rise and we will continue to rise because that is what, when you make it through the middle passage. Right. 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 You know, that, that you could, we could, we could close right there. It could be called when you make it through the middle passage. <laughs> yes. No, that is, you know, I once heard someone give a speech that talked about it um, as being that the fact that we are, Black Americans sitting here today, we are of the, the best of the best of the best of the best of the best. Because what our ancestors went through from the Middle Passage, through slavery, through Reconstruction, through all of that, for us to still be here, right? That is a legacy. That's a legacy you shouldn't want to shame. That's right. And, and we have to commit ourselves to teaching our brothers and sisters. See, I'm talking about humanity now. We have to teach our brothers and sisters of other ethnic background. One, number one, we have to respect their stories. Okay. Right. I, I don't want to get into the victimization contest. Right. But at the same time, they need to understand their history, our history in relationship to their history. Yeah. Their parents came through Ellis Island. More than likely, they don't really know that history. Yeah. If their parents came across the southern border they probably don't really know that history. And it's important for America, if we're going to heal, like they did in South Africa, and they're far from healed, but mm -hmm. they created a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. If we're really going to heal, and I'm, I'm seeing this happening locally now in many of the battles on school boards and, 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 and public school curriculum policy, we have to teach African-American history from an African-American perspective. Yes. We, have to, we have to teach Native American history from a Native American perspective. And if our white brothers and sisters feel as if it is discriminatory towards them or it's challenge, I'll go to Jesus Christ who said, he who is not sin, cast the first stone. Right. If we look at all of our histories, we have abuse. We have suffrage. We've had discrimination. We've had our caste systems for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. I think America's has probably been the most brutal. America's also considered the greatest nation in the world. That is questionable uh, right now, I think, as we count folks. But with that being said, we're not going to crawl out of this matrix until we can begin to have honest discussions about the history and what is the road to recovery. That's a, an exceptional point. You know, my maternal grandmother actually came through Ellis Island um, from Jamaica. And I remember being a kid and, you know, when you learned about Ellis Island, it was kind of this very um, fantasy-like description, right? You, you take your sail, you come through Ellis Island, they maybe stamp your book and welcome you with open arms and off you go into New York or wherever you go That's to live this right, great right, life, right? Right, right, right? And I can remember my grandmother would always say to us, that's not what happened when you were black and you came from Ellis Island. And she would tell us, she said, if you did not have money, they sent you back. Period. Wow. And, you know, when you're a kid and you hear it, you're like, is that true? Is that not true? I'm not really sure. And then maybe five years ago, not even, um, about five years ago, my husband and I took um, our son and nephews to Ellis Island mm -hmm. and did the tour in which they told us, yeah, not everybody got to stay. Wow. A lot of people got sent back when they came through Ellis Island yeah. for a whole host of reasons. Right. And I just immediately thought, wow, that's not what I learned in school, but that's absolutely what my grandmother told me. Yeah. 
Yeah, real true. And she said, I, I got I to stay because I had some money because her father was white. And I had, they asked me, how much money do you have? And she had some, and she got to stay with my aunt and my grandfather. She says, but there were other people who were on that ship from Jamaica who got sent right back. Wow, that's deep. So that, that's, that thing about history and telling it through our oh. own eyes and perspective is actually really important. That, that's an important right. diaspora story there, that it's not yeah. just those who got dropped off in Louisiana or yeah. Arkansas, that there's a, there's a whole diaspora. Yeah, know, yeah. vast majority of whom ended up in Central and South America. Yeah. So those, yeah. Right. those stories have to be told from a truth in an African-American perspective. Absolutely. But I want to talk, I mean, what some of what you've described, quite frankly, Tim, is right. How can we, as we become leaders and professionals, bring the courage of our ancestors with us? And and in what we do, and, and very, and it's not necessarily to have be broke that, broke that, you know, broke, you know, with all this bravado and all this other stuff, but that there is something in there that there's a level of courage that I think if we're really I'm going to be truthful in our in our leadership that you do have to bring. And, and so, you know, I, I've shared with you that the first time I met you, that was a thing that occurred to me, that here's this Black commissioner coming in um, and saying, look, yeah, I think working with Black banks is important, and I'm going to use my role to encourage that. And I'm not going to be afraid of the criticism um, that we often do fear, whether it comes or not, in kind of using our position to stand for our people. And so I wondered if you would share a little bit about how you do that and how you think about it. Um, and why, at least from where I sit, you don't seem to be afraid of whatever that repercussion may be. Well, again, I thank my parents. You know, they just taught me to be proud and to be determined. Um, I communicate with my ancestors all the time. You know, Marcus Garvey said, uh, people that do not know their history is like a tree without roots. That doesn't just apply to black folks, by the way. Right. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a chorus from a Taj Mahal song uh, called My Grandfather Married a St. Kitts Woman. And he said, every time you get that feeling deep down in your soul, it's a message from your ancestors who lived a long time ago, ruled the world and all its gold. So I think our ancestors are messaging to us all the time by the things we feel and the things we see. And every stop I've had in my journey, uh, I've listened to them. When I became an attorney at Bank of America, senior counsel, capital markets division, I knew I was gonna have access to transactions at a level and frequency, by the way, that I would have never seen had I taken another route an important route, but when I came out of law school, a lot of folks were heading to the courtroom. I wasn't heading to the courtroom. I wanted to be there with the transaction. It was a decision that I had made. I really think that was my ancestors directing me. So by the time I went on to become an appointment secretary and then you know, to the California Public Utilities Commission, I understood the marketplace and how markets operate and the laws and regulations. I taught securities regulations for 19 years. So, you know, by the time I arrived, I understood that there was a whole nother world out there, that that insurance company wasn't just the one that paid your claim in a car accident, which many lawyers go for. That insurance company was investing 
in the equity and in the in the debt and the commodities markets around the world. And then they were selling those investments to other reinsurers. And your piece of paper was just part of that longer stream. When you take out that credit, that credit is then sold into a tranche and that tranche is traded in the marketplace. You know, I come to the CPUC and I see the same thing. And I said, okay, we have to engage African-American businesses in every level of the energy, telecom, water, and transportation infrastructure. It's not easy. But if you're listening to your ancestors, every time you get a docket, every time you're in a hearing, you're saying, okay, so where, where is the outlet now for the disadvantaged communities and particularly the African-American community? Because I think there's also an issue of when we are blended into other communities. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm not into the victimization contact, contest, but we had the 240 years of chattel slavery on our backs. So, uh, you know, to me, and as I think I shared with you, to be very honest, it, it wasn't so much I was courageous. I never read the memo, okay, of what I could and could not do. I just didn't. So just call me ignorant, okay? Uh, I came to the commission as an appointment secretary. I was very close with Governor Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger gave me a blank check on diversity. He never questioned a diverse appointment. In fact, I believe when I left his administration to become a commissioner, he wasn't fully satisfied. And I tried to appoint every cousin and friend I had in his administration, but he still felt that probably I could do more. He had a very strong sense of equity and diversity. And if you don't believe me, look at his film catalog and the kind of roles that African-Americans have had in Arnold Schwarzenegger's films. Yeah. Okay. You look at the role at that time, he and Maria Shriver was married. You know, Maria Shriver was out there on the streets with, I mean, with, with, with real activists. Yeah. every day, still is, you know, uh, rather she's dealing with uh, issues surrounding uh, dementia and, and Alzheimer's or, or other, you know, challenges that young girls have and finding themselves and maintaining their self-esteem. So I was blessed to be in that kind of circle before I came to the commission. So I already knew, even though after you're confirmed by the Senate, there's not really much a governor can do with you, but I knew that what I was doing to help African-Americans and other underserved communities by way of the commission and the utilities that we regulated, I had, a, I had full faith and credit of the Schwarzenegger administration. Yeah. How do you think um, your other, so do you think people kind of would have expected that from you when you got to the commission? They knew you had been the appointment secretary. I would assume they did a little bit of intel to figure out you know, how did you work with people and that sort of thing? Do you think they had a sense of that before you got there? So there wasn't really a surprise that that might be a priority for you? Some may have, because I was appointment secretary during an election year. And during the off hours, I was co-chair of the African-Americans for Arnold Schwarzenegger's re-election. Okay. He got 32%, close to 33% of the African-American vote. Yeah. So I was known out in the streets but for many people, once they saw that R after my name, they had written me off as, as just another, you know, just another Republican. And I think uh, after a while, when people, not just when they began to hear me from the dais and in my speeches, like you know, you heard at that at that reception, but when they began to read my decisions and more so my dissents, <laughs> they, uh, they, they began to see that, you know, this guy's actually serious about this, and I was, and more so, not only, I had a great team, I had a great staff, I ran through a lot of them, because when you're a staffer for a commissioner, it's a 24-7 it's a type of thing, mm -hmm. but 
to my benefit, you know, I had people on my staff like, you know, Paul Phillips and Ramon Momo and Bob Mason and, and Phyllis White and others who quickly caught on to what I was trying to accomplish through the utility framework, the utility regulatory framework. And they helped me to find, because remember now it has to be in the record in a decision, it has to be in the record. So I always would try to show up at my hearings because administrative law judges actually handle the portion before it comes before the commission for a vote in California. But I always, when I could try to attend the hearings and ask questions in order to get matters into the record. Mm. So when it came to for me to get votes to render a decision, I already had it in the record. A commissioner couldn't say to me, well, commissioner, we can't do supplier diversity on uh, the procurement of uh, battery storage or solar power uh, because it's not in the record. Well, yes, it is. Cause at this hearing, you know, it, it was brought up as a question. So, you know, you have to know the tools. It, it, it isn't just attending a supplier diversity conference. You know, it, it, it isn't just, you know, you really have to know the regulatory tools on how to make it possible. And then you have to get your votes. You have to get your votes. You have to find other commissioners who are willing to stand with you. And in doing so, that's where you find common ground. And, you know, in various open meeting restrictions uh, in, in California, we call it the Brown Act. That's difficult because only so many commissioners can meet at the same time. So you have to, you have to study other commissioners' decisions to kind of know, well, you know, she supports this. So if I support that, maybe she'll support that, you know, and, and that's the way that process kind of worked. And I loved it. It, it was 24-7. I loved it. It that, was like a drug to me. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I the, the politicking that you described is actually really interesting. I will say, you know, that was what I loved about regulatory work. Mm -hmm. That's what I loved about it. I loved sitting through rate cases and listening to what was going in the record and what questions commissioners were asking, because there was always a signal about something. If you were paying attention, you kind of knew this thing was going to show up. If you ain't had the right answer, this, this is going to show up in your decision. Exactly. Um, but so as you look back now, right, you at the what what has been accomplished, right, in, in our business, people point to California yeah. as a leader around supplier diversity and things that we should do. And and yeah, there's always occasions where someone's gonna say, well, we don't want to do it like that, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to mandate it, but we think we should do this. Mm -hmm. um, but knowing now what you know today that you didn't know then, what would you have maybe pushed for more or not pushed for? Mm -hmm. Let me just say one thing. I was blessed that when I arrived at the commission, they had a president named Michael Robert Peavy. I know you met President Peavy before, oh, yeah. who was the white face of supplier diversity and economic justice. And we teamed on many decisions. And at the California Public Utilities Commission, you only need three votes because only five commissioners. So much of what we accomplished, I could not have accomplished without Peavy backing me. Peavy was the president of Southern California Edison at one time and then formed uh, New Energy Ventures, uh, which was a, a competitive uh, a supplier mm -hmm. of, uh, of electric in, in the electric market. So he knew he knew the business upside down and he, he really helped me understand, you know, uh, the, the whole dynamic and particularly in dealing with the utility. Utility is very powerful. Don't let your regulatory seat fool you. They got a yeah. deep bench. They have a deep bench. Okay. But if you understand on what to give them for what you are getting to the group that you're trying to uh, give access to. Now, looking back, 
what I had difficulty changing was a, a challenge that we've had uh, since really, you know, emancipation, uh, uh, with the exception of maybe the Freedmen's Bank for a short period of time during Reconstruction, and that's access to capital. Because you can try to make, you know, I worked with Bolt Solar, for example, you know, I felt like I was working for them at some point. And, but unless I could get them access to capital, because central solar generation is a heavy capitalized area, it's CapEx, as we call it. And, and so there were so many industries where African Americans who worked in utilities, worked in energy companies, understand transmission and distribution, could do more if they had the access to capital. And that was the challenge. That was the nut that I had difficulty cracking. Now I've been recognized for what uh, African-American other investment banks have, have accomplished in underwriting utility debt. But that's a different process when, you, when you're underwriting or you're a part of a sales syndicate. All you're required to show is your net capital capacity to participate in that transaction in most utility debt offerings, what we call over, they're oversubscribed, number one, and they're best efforts. So the, 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 the investment bank is not you know, bound with holding on to bonds that they cannot sell, which is rarely the case in a utility offering. So now that, that uh, glass is half full because that means that that minority or woman-owned, African-American-owned investment bank has the same capabilities as say a Morgan Stanley, okay? Or a Goldman Sachs or a Barclays. I can go on and on and on. What they don't have the capacity to do is offer credit lines, create loans because they're not commercial banks also. So when I began to understand that and how did I learn to understand it by those banks coming into my office and talking to me, many of whom I've represented now since I left the commission they gave me a greater understanding of why they could go toe to toe, toe to toe, eye to eye with the money center banks on key transactions. And that's the ceiling that we broke in California. It had already been broken in Illinois by Exelon, mm -hmm. but that's the ceiling we broke actually in, in Illinois and Pennsylvania by Exelon. But that's the ceiling we broke in California. And I'm, I'm so proud that that's part of my legacy and my team's legacy the group that I had so much honor working with. So what, what is the, what do you think the, the, why the barrier for access to capital? Why is that such an enormous hurdle for just about any entrepreneur, no matter where they came from? And so, you know, I, I had the opportunity to listen to Gordy Bannister, who was the CEO of Era Energy. And he's talked about, given all that he brings to the table um, and his team, still can't get past that one, crack that nut. What, what is that about, do you think? You know, it's an irony there because we actually have the capital. Yeah, I said, it. we have the capital. We just give a fiduciary power to a manager or trust structure to manage that capital. Okay. So when you look at these pension funds like CalPERS and CalSTRS, or I'm sure Connecticut's pension fund, I go on and on and on. And not only those, you know, insurance companies, as I've mentioned, mutual funds, banks, those are our deposits. Those are our premiums, okay? Right. Uh, and they use those funds to create capital to the entities that they feel are safe bets, okay? 
are, are, you know, as, as the old saying goes, you lend to those who need least, you know, you know, as anybody said, you don't lend a broke dude some money, right? Okay. All right. <laughs> but the mistake that we have made is not understanding that that is our money. Believe it or not, I supported the Bush administration and their idea that a portion of Social Security could be managed by private asset managers. Why? Because number one, there's some dynamic asset managers out there like John Rogers and Aerial Capital, and I can, I can name Fairview Capital, I can name a number of progress, I can name a number of them. Why shouldn't they have the ability to manage a portion, again, of our money? Right. The Democrats, I don't mean to make it a partisan issue, but the Democrats had a real fear of that. And I'll never understand what it was. I, th I think it was a fear that would result in some market collapse or, you know, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think it was misguided because that was an avenue of opportunity for African-American investment managers. And, and by the way, that capital can now flow through, through, you know, private equity funds to African-American businesses to put them on that growth spur. Now, in all honesty, I'm seeing more and more uh, investment vehicles that are being created by some of the, you know, the brilliant professionals out there like Melody Hobson and John Rogers and Thurman White, I can go on and on and on. Uh, so I, I, I see it happening, but nowhere near at the rate that our communities need. Yeah. And you know, Paul, when I learned as a Bank of America um, attorney, and, and, and I mean, no offense to any racial group, but white people lose a lot of money. They lose a lot of money and come right back to the capital markets. We have a president who went bankrupt a number of times and came right back to the capital markets. So, you know, we have to develop the same kind of level of forgiveness, repair, and restructuring for African American risk takers that we have for other risk takers. Mm -hmm. Every community needs the risk takers. Okay. That's who creates that. That's who that's what technology is. That's what medical development is. At the end of the day, it's a risk taker that's there and saying, I'm going to put your money down on this. They're always usually working with other people's money. <laughs> and, and we're going to benefit from the return, but we're also going to suffer the loss. And, that, and that's the reality of the marketplace. And so do you think it's that we don't fully appreciate or understand how it really works? Um, you know, it's kind of, because it, it sounds like as you describe it, and excuse my analogy, because I, I know it's going to be low grade and probably not completely accurate, but it's kind of like when you go to 125th Street, and my man is selling CDs for $5 and we want to haggle with him. Yeah. But we'll go into Best Buy and give him $12.99. Without even the Whatever they ask, without right. saying anything. Is, is that the kind of dynamic that you're describing in terms of our money and investing and taking the risk and the loss? Well, I think that haggling is, is part of the marketplace. You know, I mean, uh, Best Buy, they, they came to that price point based upon the competition that was out there. So there was some marketplace haggling that was going on. But yes, and, and I'm a strong believer in us, as you stated, supporting African-American businesses at every level, at every level. And, and by the way, I'm a strong believer in white people supporting African-American businesses at every level, and brown people supporting African-American business, and black people supporting brown businesses at every imaginable level. I mean, I really think that you know once we start segregating certain consumer practices, it can backfire. Sure. You know, we want to welcome those dollars into our businesses, into our communities, into our law firms, our investment management firms. But yes, charity begins at home. We should be have a heightened focus on our businesses that are improving our communities. Yeah. 
So for those people who are listening who say, you know what, I would love to do that. How do we do that? What would be the first step if I say, you know what, Tim, Larry and I just hit, we hit the lotto mm-hmm. and I got $5 million and you know what? Yeah, I want to invest. I want to invest in my people mm-hmm. and I'm willing to take the risk. Maybe not all five mil. Maybe I only risk a mil, whatever that is. How would you start? What do you do? I'd, I'd first place money in a black bank. By the way, something that I'm going to direct my uh, portfolio manager to do, you know, with mm-hmm. my assets is something that's been on my bucket list. But I would say take out a CD with a black bank and give them the level of capital where they can turn around and make loans to other banks. Uh, I have, well, my, my prior wealth advisor is Kimberly Brandon, my companion. Uh, she, she is, she doesn't, I don't call it retired because with all the boards she's sitting on, I think she's busier now than when she was a senior vice president and wealth manager at Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I have an African-American that manages, you know, my assets with Morgan Stanley, brilliant young brother named Sean Peake. So uh, I think there are steps that we can take that help to, you know, build that wealth and, and, and develop that wealth succession. Uh, I think it's important that everybody establish, you know, some kind of living trust or, or, or either through an insurance contract, but something that avoids probate and has the ability to quickly pass wealth to the people you love, maybe with restrictions to make mm-hmm. certain that it's, some of it's there for the next generation. Now, if someone's sleeping under a cardboard box right now, that's hard to imagine, right? right. So that's why I believe in the social net. But I do also believe that if you can survive putting a cardboard box against a wall on a street, then with the right, you know, mental health, housing, medical, you can be anything that you could dream to be. Absolutely. And so I'm I'm, I'm one of the world's biggest optimists. I suffer from that, by the way. It has its consequences, but you know, I believe that people can rise up from, you know, the dregs and 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 run things given the right access, opportunity, and training. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, I think what might be- Can we break my... for a moment? Yeah. I just want to wipe my- Yeah, yeah. See, that's sweater. how when you get the preaching. Yeah, I'm a sweater. You know, when I get that Holy Ghost, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The word. Um, no, really, the question I have for you is this. So, you you know, you've said that you believe that ancestors are sending us messages all the time. I love that. What message do you think they're sending us right now? Be strong. Yeah. Be proud. Be strong. Be proud. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. You know, I saw a, um, and I'm, I, I, I know the, the vice presidential candidate very well, Kamala Harris. She's one of ours. She was our district attorney. We went to the same law school. Kim and I have supported her, you know, from the beginning. We have a long history. Um, but there was an ad that troubled me. It was the ad that depicted, and I don't know if they played it in your market, but it was the ad that depicted Donald Trump saying, what do you have to lose? Which to me was, mm. but what do you have to lose? Okay. And it went on to talk about, you know, the president's track record, saying all the things that he had done. And one of the things they said is that he took away our de- our dignity. He took away our dignity. And I'm like, stop right there. Mm. Put the brakes on. No, he didn't. Yeah. You didn't take away my dignity. Yeah. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. You cannot, I don't care how much humiliation you try to put me through, you will not take away my dignity. Right. I think that's the kind of message we need to be giving to our children, to our, my case, our, my grandchildren, 
that, you know, we've been through a lot and we're going to go through more, but we can make it, you know, we're going to be all right. We can make, it. but there are some certain tools that we're going to have to begin to utilize tools that are at our disposal. Some of our kids, we've got to turn this thing off for a couple hours and let them just read. Yeah. Okay. Let them calculate, let them just sit back and think. Okay. Yeah. We got to look at ways of increasing our savings rate, no matter how difficult it is. And my belief, it can be done. If it's a nickel a day, a quarter a day, we got to learn to have a culture of saving. In regards to this election, the fight for the midterm started today. Yeah. Every election is the most important election of our lives. Right. I vote for dog catcher. Just, yeah. just. I'm going to drop a ballot. Anytime you put a ballot in my hand, I'm dropping a ballot. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I think that applies to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to become more engaged in the political and the economic and, and, and of course, the health care as well. I mean, health is a whole nother discussion. You know, I, I, have, I was in my yoga class this morning. Okay. Health is a, another discussion. But we, we, we have to become more engaged. I think we need to move away to some extent from the leadership model to more a centralized leadership model to more of a decentralized, mm -hmm. like what am I saying to my family? What am I saying to my neighbor? Am I a member of the parents club at my child's school? Am I an active member? You know, am I one of those cars pulling up for the field trips so that my children can see that I'm active, you know, or, or, you know, it could be your children. It could be someone that you're being a guardian for. It could be, you know, any number of things, you know, there's some of those fundamentals, by the way, I think we're doing, on a large scale, this is not me talking down or lecturing anybody, but as I tell, you know, my children, you know, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, Steph Curry, Steph Curry as a coach, you know, LeBron James as a coach, you know, you can always, you can always refine your game. And even today, you know, I'm very close with former uh, mayor and speaker, Willie Lewis Brown, you know, particularly since I lost my father, I seek Mayor Brown's advice on so many matters. I'm so happy he hasn't blocked my calls, you know, <laughs> because we all need those folks who've been there, done that. And the higher you go, sometimes the harder it is to find. Yeah. And by the way, that doesn't mean necessarily they're sitting in a C-suite. They could be swinging a mop, but from swinging that mop, they may have seen some things. They may have had some experiences that, that strengthen us. The other thing, and I'm not a philosopher, I'm just, I'm just a black man out here, you know, but I believe that you learn more from your setbacks than you often do from your gains. Absolutely. You know? And so if we are calculating this, and by all indications, uh, Vice President Biden looks like he has a path to victory, but there are challenges in the Senate, you know, and there's a certain margin of loss now that's occurred in Congress, but we cannot allow that to dictate our future. You know, we have the ability to turn this thing around. It takes a long game. It takes understanding there is a congressional election in two more years. And by the way, there may be a key city council election next year, and you may have a county district judge or a county supervisor election in March or May, you know? And, and along with that, make sure that candidate has an agenda that addresses our economic business needs. I think that's been part of, you know, my challenge out here in California is that so, too often the folks we elect don't fully understand what's happening on the ground on a business level and what businesses really need. I mean, criminal justice reform, very important, by the way. In fact, it's very important that we give our ex-offenders access to capital, access to justice, places so the just not going to hire them. So they're mm -hmm. prime for entrepreneurs. Right. You know, 
but it's important that we have that, you know, that, that seamless flow through of knowledge to make sure that we can have a comprehensive approach to improving our communities. Well, the ancestors have spoken. Ha! No, they have. Um, the ancestors would probably like for me to be quiet. <laughs> no, no. You know, I, I even myself will say, I, th I feel like I'm living my mother's life yeah. and I'm just getting to carry it a little bit further than she had the opportunity to do. And I expect that my daughters will live my life, but they'll carry it farther than I was able to do. Right? Um, that's real. That That's our ancestors, man. Just, yeah. that's why I love stories. That's why when I love stories. When I've had my disappointments and setbacks, and we all do, we all do. I asked myself, what would one of my ancestors that was enslaved, I don't use a slave, enslaved, and in fact, uh, dear, uh, actually a client of mine by the name of Ralph Clark said, we should really stop referring to the term slavery and talk about human beings that were owned, sold, yeah. traded, because that really makes it more real. Right. But I will say to myself, what would that ancestor do to be where I am right now and disappointed? and disheartened? What would they do to get that shackle taken off their ankle? What would she do to not have to have that slave master visit the quarters? Yeah. Okay. What would he have done to not be horsewhipped in front of his children? You know? So again, I'm not trying to go all radical about it. This is history. This is documented history. Yeah. And so anytime I get a setback, I start listening to the ancestors. Because they're like, son, if I could be where you are, if I could have the education that you have, I remember calling my grandmother, Leola Labasa, who lived through the Tulsa riots. Mm. Okay? And I'd been accepted to a number of uh, law schools around the country. And I decided to go local with the University of California. And I said, grandmother, I just called to let you know, you know, about, and I named all the schools. And she said, son, that's what you're supposed to do. Mm. She didn't even congratulate me. She said, son, that's what you're supposed to do. And guess what? She was right. Yeah. With the opportunities that are in front of us. Right. Now, I know there are setbacks, but again, put yourself in the place, you know, her great grandmother was a slave. Okay. So, you know, put yourself in that position. And to me, the rest answers itself. Yeah. Well, with that, Commissioner Emeritus, my friend, Tim Simon, I thank you for your time. I thank you and uh, keep doing what you're doing. I'm so proud oh, of thank you, you and Larry and your amazing, beautiful, brilliant family. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen you in many venues and you bring it everywhere you go. I, when, when it's time for you to speak, I can, I can relax because I know it's going to be handled with the utmost, yeah. utmost. Yeah sense of excellence. So, you know, God bless you and thank you for this opportunity. I do. Really thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tim Simon. For the rest of our Always Bet on Black episodes, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And for all things Abe, follow us on social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next week is Thanksgiving. So your girl here is gonna be taking a well-needed break. We made it through 2020, y'all. So there's a lot for us to be thankful for. 
However, we'll be back on December 3rd, where we'll be talking to Rick Thigpen, Senior Vice President of Corporate Citizenship at PSEG. And I'm excited to share that conversation with you. Remember, always bet on Black.